0: This episode is sponsored by Headspace. Meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash P-E-L.
1: Hey, this is your partially examined life nightcap. It's the New Year's Party Edition 2021. Recording this on, let's say it's New Year's Eve. It's actually the 17th of December for us. But hey, Happy New Year's, everybody.
2: Happy New Year's. Happy New Year's. Should it be Happy New Year or Happy New Year's? Oh, that's today's question. Happy New Year! But <laughs> it's the
3: New Year's Happy New Year's Day possessive party. Yes, I once looked this up and I can't remember the answer.
1: <laughs> it's not just plural; it's New Year. Yeah, it's apostrophe
3: Yes. Yeah, that's nice. New the Year's Day. day is because yes. the, the day is possessed by the New Year. But when you wish somebody a Happy New Year, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> You leave the day off because you're saying it on New Year's Eve. So it's an abbreviation. So it doesn't make any sense. So you just trail it because you're on the border between two days, temporal stages. <laughs> so you have to leave it indeterminate. New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. I
1: think thanks to global warming and supply shortages, it's going to be happy nude year. And we're all going to be running
2: around with no garments. Let's hope that's not the case.
3: I'm not sure that would be so happy. <laughs> Except with strict qualification. They should, they have to strict vetting with who gets to do that.
4: There was some video actually in the Madison.com of the Madison nude bicycle race. And Ooh. I realized, you know what? I'm just good with people wearing clothes.
2: It was just fine with me. <laughs> Are you guys the type that make New Year's resolutions?
4: I don't make New Year's resolutions, but I do find that. It's one of the occasions where I think about what I'm doing and taking stock.
0: Give yourself a grade for the year.
4: Something like that.
1: This is a perfect segue for our agenda here. Yeah, so this is what we're here to do. I mean, Dylan, you were answering the question. Do you want to start us on sort of where you're at in your intellectual journey at this moment? Maybe how that's been affected. We could be open to how this has been affected by personal and professional changes over the last year. Obviously, we have the pandemic and stuff like that
4: when I was thinking about this idea of taking stock is like usually where I'm at at the new year, New Year's and birthday is usually where it it happens for me, which I'm sure is terribly conventional and cliche. For me, I just find myself decidedly middle-aged. You know, I'm not old, I'm not young, and I don't know what that means, but I know that I'm not old and I'm not young. And the thing that I wonder about is because I end up thinking about You know, I got all these books about different kinds of versions of self-improvement, thinking about habits and health in different ways. And I wonder sometimes, is that because I'm decidedly middle-aged that it's that way? Or is it just that that's that way for everybody? You know, it's just the media markets, self-improvement for all different categories of life. And we um, are in different phases of that. But I am continuing to think about what habits I have and which ones I want to keep and which ones I want to get rid of.
1: Is this the year I know at some point you, you were always pretty fit, but like you changed your habits in some way that like, it was noticeable that you slimmed down from your already slim self to a, a mere stick, something, uh, was that in this last year? Was that a pandemic related thing?
4: Yes. It was primarily within this past year. I use the pandemic as a instigator for me on the score is that I, decided that if I was going to get through the pandemic, you know what seemed to be like it was going to be a long haul, I was going to need to sort of tend to my mental well-being. And one of the ways that I do that is tend to my physical well-being. So I more or less for the past two years have been working out like six days a week, probably averaging four and a half days a week. I'm fitter than I was when I was 30 years old. So that feels great. You know, I like that. But I um I guess it goes hand in hand with the fact that my life, my kids are all out of the house now. You know, that's been a transition in my life. And I mean, for Mark, that's, you know, more recent for you than it is for me. My kids have been out of the house for three years, three and a half years now. But just figuring out what that new normal is, I have new time to do stuff that I used to not have.
1: Wes, do you have a overall narrative of sort of I know you've had some like job changes and I don't know. Stuff that, or have you been running your halfway house for more than the last year? I thought this was mostly a in the last year kind of thing. And subtext started, and
3: I've been running this halfway house for five years, Mark.
1: Okay, and I guess subtext has been around for a year and a half now, right? (laughs) Am I totally wrong?
3: It's been almost well in February. Will be two years since we really got going on recordings, or January, and then yeah, we started in August, releasing them a little over a year ago. In August of 2020. I graduated with a mental health counseling degree. I have a year and a half left in this house before I get an LMHC, before I get the actual license, because I have to get all these hours to get the license.
1: That was it. You got patients for the first time this year, like individual, right?
3: That you're counseling. Not exactly. I mean, I've been doing field work and internships. I've had patients for quite a while now. But as far as my own, I have one private practice patient at this point which I wasn't planning on doing. It's just because someone wanted to do that, who I had already been seeing through my internship. And so I wouldn't have started my private practice now because I'm overworked and I'm ready to be out of this house, but I'm stuck here for a year and a half. And (laughs) so I'm taking time off from school, which I shouldn't have been doing because this year, yeah, this year has been horrific in terms of workload and all the crises I've had to deal with in my house. My father dying of COVID and, and just the effect of COVID. it's just been bad. <laughs> it's been very bad. So basically, I'm constantly thinking about quitting everything except for PEL and going to Costa Rica, basically, and <laughs> living there because I, I feel like I'm constantly at the end of my rope. That's really <laughs> what's, the way it is, but yeah.
1: I don't know if you're just swaying,
2: Seth, or you were agreeing about being at the end of your rope. I'm agreeing about that and Costa Rica, if I could drop everything and go there, I would do the same. Yeah. I mean, the mental health crisis is real. 2020 was supposed to be the the bad year, but this has been mental health wise much worse for me anyway. Right when we were supposed to return to the office, you know, I've been sitting on in the same chair doing the same thing over Zoom for, well, Teams and then Zoom for a year. They announced they were shutting the office. So it was like, uh, psych you know we're trying to get the kid back in school so that she doesn't grow up with no social graces and also for sanity for hers and ours and And her age right now is she'll be two in february so she's like i'm sorry did i say two yeah i meant to say in two months she'll be two she'll be four in february or four in two months sorry She's Benjamin Buttons. She's actually growing younger. <laughs> you know, she made it to three and is headed back the other direction.
1: That is a way to let people know, like make people think they don't know you as well as they think. Like, oh, your kid is, is four now. No, my kid is two. What, what the hell is wrong with you?
2: <laughs> oh, she must be five. You know, she must be five now. Actually, she's nine. You know, like it's always.
1: <laughs> I should ask my dad, how old do you think I am? Do you remember Exactly. Do you think he does? He's 90. I'm exactly 40 years younger than he is. So he probably could figure it out, but
2: I'll ask him. (laughs) My dad probably, he might not know. My mom would know, but she's getting to the point where she can't remember things as well as she used Mm -hmm. to. So yeah, it's a constant COVID crisis when you're dealing with kids in school and elderly parents and a spouse who owns a 150 person touch business, spa it's just been constant, constant drama. I did get off my earlier obsession this year with genocide, and I'm trying to find a way to channel that energy positively. I have a thesis that I may try to figure out how to work out with the PL community somehow or on the PL blog. But because it's so nihilistic, I'm holding it close to the chest uh, for now. So I'd like to be positive and uplifting about the one good thing is, like, Dylan, my commitment to exercise is in the form of walking. So I've been getting up at five thirty, six o'clock and walking two or three miles a day with the dog. And that's that's great, a great stabilizer.
1: Well, I will use my personal arc to maybe transition the conversation to our intellectual arcs and what we want to do with the podcast. Because some of what's been going on has gotten me to kind of review, like, where are my gaps? And some of that is I just offered a tutoring option. A couple years ago. It's on the store. And some people have done it as just a one-off. Oh, it's really cool to, you know, meet the PEL host. That's nice. I had three people in the last year that one is every week, every other week, you know, it's been a pretty steady thing for several months now. And then a couple others are like now and again, but maybe once a month or, you know, at least three or four times total. And it's gotten me to look back at Okay, so like reread some of the old texts, or at least re-listen to the episodes that we've did there, so like to revisit Kant and the Pragmatists and Hume and et cetera, et cetera. Another thing, I think I probably announced on a nightcap that I'd, I'd started writing a book in the spring. We've talked a long time about a PL book, and for various reasons, that is either not gone anywhere, or the version that we're trying to sell now is like, Can you just take transcripts of what we've done? And, you know, we've kind of given up long since given up on the four of us are going to actually write something together, something new. That was an ambition five years ago, seven years ago, but like never really seemed like it was going to work. But, you know, I got excited about that. Then I got distracted myself by starting the Philosophy versus Improv, which is another project that excites me. It's like it doesn't require any prep, but it's something that is dangerous in a way that the other podcasts are a little more comfortable, a little more routine and there's just, but in the last before early November I actually got hired to write a book. They're just paying me a a flat fee to write this book called Philosophy Fourteens, and it is based on an outline. It's this media group. They put out like a couple thousand books a year. They do market research. Where are their gaps?
3: They sent that 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 proposal to me too. (laughs)
1: They bugged me again, so I ended up responding and sort of had to write a little bit as an audition piece. And so it's going to be like...
3: What are they paying you to do? I'm
1: not going to announce that on the air. It is a flat fee, and then I won't make any residuals. It was enough. It was enough for me to bother to do it. But it is a pretty constraining outline. Like, I get to come up with what questions I'm going to ask. But it's like, for each question that I ask, there's definite... Very tight word counts and I have to write to a 12 year old level. So like it is an interesting challenge and it has to incorporate like world philosophy. I can't just be Western stuff. So that's gotten me then listening to more.
2: What's going to be the bigger challenge doing that incorporating world philosophy or writing like a 12 year old?
1: The latter <laughs> writing for 12 year olds. Yeah. Cause it's really hard to explain anything in, you know, a hundred words or whatever. If that's like how long you have for a section, but as far as the non Western thing. One of the things I've been doing is just looking more to the Peter Adamson's, his own history philosophy without any gaps, the main feed that covers Islamic philosophy, some North African stuff, but then he had started another feed with Indian and then African philosophy. And so that is something that I had rediscovered when we had the Stephen Phillips episode earlier this year, and I got all into, you know, that there is a canon in there too. like There's a reason that St. John's has their Eastern Classics program. And so now I feel like I've discovered this new canon and gotten the outlines of it in a way that I didn't have even a year ago. And it's made me really want to learn more and fill in those gaps and be as thorough about that as we have been about everything else. I'm not going to necessarily push that on, on Wes, but that is something that is definitely in my interest now, And I feel like it is foolish and willfully ignorant to just shut the door on that and just have no interest in what half the world has done. Is that a good transition into what do we want to do with this year
2: (laughs) with the podcast? It's a transition. I would be up for doing some
4: more Eastern stuff. So I'm, I'm open to it for sure. I would like to do a couple things more on philosophy of science and sort of related topics I just haven't completely been able to get it together for what the reading list would be. The big one for me that I want to make sure that we do is something about quantum interpretation. I've mentioned it before. I've been reading this book. It's called Cubism for Quantum Bayesianism. And I have a friend who's been writing a big article about one of the founders of it and been interacting with him a lot. And there's some interesting developments in quantum interpretation that. I think would be really rich on the podcast and some nice links, especially with cubism, with pragmatism as informing that interpretation if there's anything that was explicitly on my list that I'd like to do this year, it'd be that
1: well, it was very nice that we were able to in the last year you know revisit philosophy of science finally, and mm-hmm. I know in the last couple of nightcaps we suggested a, you know some addenda that we could have to that, and what you're talking about is certainly part of that other folks things that we're exciting about this last year that we covered that you want to do more of or new directions that you've been thinking about.
3: Early modern philosophy and German idealism has always been the most appealing to me, in part because they're sort of adjacent to the advent of modern science, even though I'm not, you know, like contemporary analytic, I don't know, contemporary philosophy and its analytic and continental versions is often, I find it disappointing, either too dry or too speculative and literary. But With someone like Hegel, I don't know. It's just a sweet spot for me. It's speculative but rigorous at the same time, which is what I like. And, you know, I don't know if I have a good explanation of it. But someone like Malebranche, we just did, who you guys did not seem to be all that enthusiastic about, at least when you started, (laughs) before you got into it. So, yeah, I just, you know, picking up a text like that, I know immediately, yeah, this is the sweet spot. So I would definitely be up for more of that early modern German idealism. You didn't
1: find like Badu was rigorous in that way, even though he has fake math language.
3: Yeah, no, I see someone as like Badu is when we had our discussions, I enjoyed it and I got something out of it. Or even on the second reading with the note taking, that's always a more sympathetic read for me because I'm trying to decipher it. Basically, I'm often just trying to translate it into plain English, right? Any text you do that with, it's an interesting problem and it can be rewarding to do it. And you can discover things regardless of what's in the original text. You can make discoveries, right? You could treat it as an investigation and you make your own discoveries. But so it was enjoyable in that sense. You know, it's like the same thing with someone like Judith Butler, even though I, I don't have the highest opinion of that. Let's leave Butler aside because I have a lower opinion. But with by Jew, it's I'm not a fan of that approach. I don't find it clever and literary. I don't find it aesthetically pleasing. I don't find it profound. It doesn't get the rigor or the the grand systematizing Maybe it's a grandiose-ass quality of, like, you know, a Hegel, for instance. Like, sometimes I think people are trying to reproduce that, but they don't know how. So, it doesn't work.
1: Do you feel like it's different if it's something that is, in some sense, part of the canon, part of history? Like, for me, even though I personally don't really like reading Derrida, but I feel like that is somebody that was, at some point, canonized in a way that maybe Badiou and Judith Butler will be, but they're not quite old enough. And Baju's pretty old himself, but just in terms of when they were famous, that I feel like there are characters like Derrida and Lyotard and Marcuse and stuff that like I'm more interested in doing them than a contemporary figure. And the only reason that I said yes to Baju is because so many people assured me that, oh, he is actually going to be regarded that way. It's just, I just am not on the cutting edge of things and I might not know that. But him and Deleuze, like they really are the real deal as far as people of today.
3: I mean, I think we have to do them because they are big names and we should investigate. And and even someone like Derrida, right, I'm highly prejudiced against and based on what I've read. And I think he's a charlatan. I even kind of feel the same way about Lacan. (laughs) But even if they are charlatans, it's not to say that there aren't ideas that are important. And the other thing is, like, I always have to bracket that and say, all right, you're probably being intemperate. Since I am an intemperate person in general, I just assume that I'm being intemperate and closed-minded and that I could change my mind. So I reluctantly crack open the text. (laughs) If I'm forced to do it by this podcast, you know, that's not the worst thing. And then I can do a real evaluation instead of just act on my prejudices.
2: I think I figured out why Wes likes the era of philosophy that he does. So the beginning of philosophy, what we have is fragments. So from one half sentence, thousands of books of interpretation and meanings may be drawn. At the other end, in contemporary, we have people who do nothing but just vomit out books and words and blogs and videos and webinars and TED Talks constantly. And you're trying to distill all of that nonsense into one useful, meaningful idea. And then somewhere during the period of German idealism, you had just the right amount of words (laughs) with just the right (laughs) amount of ideas coming out of them.
3: It's the Goldilocks zone. It's
2: the Goldilocks <laughs> zone. I have to say, the Hegel thing really opened my eyes this year. I mean, it, it really truly does feel like, at least as far as the key philosophical themes go, German idealism checks pretty much all the boxes like freedom, consciousness, knowledge, you know, ontology. You get it all. But I do also think there's something to be said for this is maybe where I guess Wes and I disagree. I think there are questions to be asked about cultural and gendered perspectives around are we asking those questions from a place that isn't necessarily shared by everybody else? And if that's so, is it possible for philosophy to open up or is philosophy predominantly a European and male enterprise? And I do think those are legitimate questions. I also think that German idealism is going to come up a little short when it comes to political philosophy. Or at least unsatisfying when it comes to political philosophy in the same way that Spinoza would. But I've had this book on my shelf for probably going on 30 years now. I told you about how my dog destroyed my peach copy of The Phenomenology of Spirit. But uh, S- Langer, Suzanne Langer, Philosophy in a New Key, I don't even really know exactly what it's about. It's one of these things that's just kind of always preyed upon me. And I would like to see if we could find some time at some point to look into it. She was a student of Whitehead, but it's more about symbolism and semiotics and reason. So anyway, I would like to get to that at some point.
1: Dylan, have you gotten to the point where you have any strong feelings about contemporary continental philosophy? (laughs) Do you feel more comfortable at all in the area now that we've done several readings rather than like, I just have no idea. (laughs) You always have a disclaimer at the beginning of those episodes that like, I wasn't aware that this was even a person. And (laughs) now I do.
4: I do have those so like yeah, Baju and it was an example of someone I'd never heard of. My undergraduate education had a strong streak of postmodernism in it. And so I had read some bit of Derrida and so I find it okay. I find myself often not having a lot of patience for it. Like when I read the Baiju, his sort of popular book, it was interesting without being hard. And so I was like, Okay, that's fine. And then when we, we read the articles where he would just go on these tears. I don't know, I just found it less compelling and interesting. I try to take Wes as my inspiration and read with a charitable mind. Malla Branch is a perfect example where I found myself much more charitable when I started getting into it. I do find myself having to be more decisive about forcing myself to engage with varieties of things and not just want to stick with things I'm interested in. And that's probably part of being middle-aged. But Wes was saying, you know, early modernism and German idealism is a sweet spot for him. And One way I would take that is that he likes thinking about the things. He likes the presentation. He finds the resonance and the take on the ambiguities and the nuance and the challenges in both the ways in which the questions are engaged as well as the direction of the answers all enlivening and in the right mix. And I agree with Seth. I was surprised when I was going through the Hegel how much that I liked it in ways that I didn't expect. But if I'm honest with myself, it's because of how much of it points towards emergence and pragmatism. And even though it seems maybe weird to think of, maybe it's weird to think of pragmatism and idealism having a lot in common, but maybe they have a lot in common
3: (laughs) yeah they do
4: (laughs) so maybe my lack of patience has to do with wanting to think about things that involve for me understanding and thinking about how we figure things out and that's one thing that i thought that i liked about hegel hegel was a lot in the stuff that we read i liked how it was about not just thinking about how we figure things out and i have patience for metaphysics that engages that but not just for the metaphysics that feels like it's for metaphysics sake, I'll put it that way.
1: So the stuff like Aristotle's categories would be metaphysics for metaphysics sake, which that's a good example of something. So there's an episode that Peter Adamson had about some Indian thinker that had a similar list to Aristotle's categories. And actually I even used that as like, but he had the category inherence Aristotle didn't have inherents, and I sort of was trying to explain why that would be the case. And so I feel like just in the same way that I'm sort of not natively interested in something like Aristotle's categories, then I'm not going to be natively interested in what you know somebody in India is saying about that either. But if I let myself get interested, then like, isn't it awesome then to read what Aristotle thought and to read what somebody who just came up with something similar? Out of sheer synchronicity, thousands of miles away, that all seems like it's just a matter of surrendering yourself, really, insofar as you are able, to whatever it is we're going to read, to see this as, a, as an opportunity, as an open door to a whole intellectual culture. And I don't just mean non-Western. I'm just, even if it's like a contemporary person, like, what are the contemporary debates?
4: Let's take a moment to hear from some of our sponsors. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act, But how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could visit GiveWell.org. There you'll get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found for saving and improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest-impact, evidence-backed charities they found. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free. No sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. I give to the Maximum Impact Fund at GiveWell. I like the approach of maximizing the impact of my donation and targeting it to where it can do the most good. Go to GiveWell.org to read more about their research or to donate to any of their recommended charities. Again, that's GiveWell.org and enter Partially Examined Life at checkout so they know that we sent you.
0: Ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch? That tension is constantly traveling through your body? Do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? These are just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. This year, why not make small changes to your daily routine that have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. I use Headspace daily and situationally, to help manage anxiety and stress, and I like their curated content for special occasions. On New Year's Day, Headspace presented me with Naming Grief in a Year of Loss by Dr. Ajita Robinson. Her explication of the symbolic losses of 2020 and guidance for how to name and process them was helpful for me to meditate on my experience of the past year and start clean in this one. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com P-E-L, and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash P-E-L today. Headspace.com slash P-E-L. St. John's College is the nation's great books college,
4: where students explore 3,000 years of human thought. Together, students discuss, analyze, and grapple with the most difficult questions about our lives and world. St. John's College offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options at their campuses in Santa Fe, New Mexico and Annapolis, Maryland. The Graduate Institute is a home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. From Aristotle to Aquinas, Wordsworth to Wolfe, Herodotus to Hegel, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Liberal Arts explore some of history's most influential writers and thinkers. The interdisciplinary degree includes five segments, literature, mathematics, and natural sciences, philosophy and theology, politics and society, and history. On the Santa Fe campus, students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the great books of India, China, and Japan in an Asian studies program that delves both deep and wide into the richness of these traditions. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about our undergraduate and graduate programs, including online options at sjc.edu slash PEL.
1: So like, that's another thing. Are we going to try to keep having guests and talk about their current books, that this was something that whenever this comes up recently, Wes has voted against? Because like, why wouldn't we want to just cover a classic? And I totally see that. But I also see like when we had the St. John's guy that came about natural kinds.
3: Stuart Humphrey. Or as some like to call him, God. (laughs) That's what we called him in school.
1: (laughs) That was a glimpse into a whole sort of debate that I just didn't know anything about and I still don't feel comfortable with. But that is a nice thing to do at least twice a year to open ourselves up to that kind of like, what is contemporary philosophy actually doing? They're not studying Malebranche. We're doing nothing but good things in taking in more of the history of philosophy like Malebranche, like Avicenna, like whatever to inform how we're going to understand these modern people, but it still is not the same as like getting an idea into what a professor has to sift through in current journals on a regular basis.
3: So I don't mind doing I mean, if it's a really good and not just for the public, right, if it's not just a popularization, then it's, it's an actual work of philosophy that we think is probably good. You know, even if it's contemporary, I'm all for that. And then the question is, do we want to treat that as an interview, have them on to talk about the work that they happen to be popularizing, you know, that they happen to be doing a press junket for right now so that they expect to be interviewed? Yeah. So I guess there's a few different issues there, but I'm a little wary of just doing, having people on for interviews. I don't think it works very well for press junkets and then not interested in popularizations or something that's just very obviously very political. So that's my, that's my view on that we could do without having them on as a guest too
1: yeah like what we do with bud you we didn't really consider seriously inviting him i don't know seth are you hearing from the people or from your own explorations like stuff that's currently going on okay that's a that's a shaking of the
2: head no i mean i enjoy having guests for the most part i'm less excited about professors as i am other kinds just because Like you said, you know, people who are out on their book tour or whatever, it has a tendency to just be monologue and it's not quite the give and take. But you know how we get these notifications from the blog about approving or I saw some kind of social media tick or something like that. And somebody was talking about the policing episode with Phil that just came across my feed recently. Was that in the the new server, which... Oh, Discord? Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe that's where it was. Yeah, Discord, yes. I was just looking through that today. Yeah, we should remind people
1: now that for all supporters, we have a Discord server. So this is yet another reason to sign up to support us if you don't already do so, besides getting these nightcaps on a regular basis. Yeah, that is another place to reach out to us.
2: My point is, is that having a subject matter expert on who... Isn't a professor, doesn't have an axe to grind, you know, f- kind of fits well with our vibe, I think is fun because you learn a lot. But of course it's very hard to know in advance <laughs> what the person's gonna be like. And like I don't have any great desire to have bed you on. Like I don't need to get to know the guy or have the experience. Or Zizek or any of those other Part of me wants to have Zizek on.
3: He didn't respond to me when I followed up with him, so
2: just so I can see up close and personal, I want the experience, so to speak. I wish I could have been on stage somewhere or seen him.
3: Did you like being interrupted? And I guess <laughs> you have experience of that with me, but
2: oh, yeah, no, I'm sure I, I wouldn't even bother talking. I just would want to see the gesticulations and the spittle up close and personal. But I mean, if that's the criteria, then can we have Kate Beckinsale or uh. Kristen Bell or somebody like that on that would be a preference of mine. Have more celebrities back on. We haven't even tried that in quite a long she time. Chief fan. <laughs> <laughs> I or guess. I guess name. now that I have
1: that, I have pretty much pop that I try to get. You know, and even for that, I haven't tried too hard to get celebrities for that. But that's that's where we would put them. Actually, as a mean joke, I don't know if it's a mean joke yet or it's a nice thing. But you know, if we don't want these contemporary people pumping their books on this podcast, I started offering them guest spots on Philosophy versus Improv. And if they're willing to go through that nonsense that we do on that show, then that's, they're cool. And they really. (laughs) (laughs) You can can hear Jenny Hansen that we've had on this show was our first professor guest on that. And she did great. It was a delight. And we've had since then a guy named T. Nguyen, who will be a guest with us for John Dewey on Art is Experience eventually. Whenever we get around to doing that book, he's the guy that I long tagged for that. He has written a book on philosophy and video games, but has never insisted about talking about that book on any of the anyway. And yeah, I want to try to get more professors to uh, do that nonsense.
3: What happened to uh, the guy who wrote Bill and Ted?
1: He was on pretty much pop.
3: Oh, he was. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. How'd that go?
1: It was good. Yeah. I mean, we were talking because he wrote his book about Buddhism. And so that was a great example of like, I think it was pitched as a book for us to talk about, but it was a comedy book about Buddhism. (laughs) There's no way that it would have fit on this show at all, but it was, it was okay for the other one and using it to talk about the Bill and Ted movies and whatever else.
3: And he's a, uh, he's a real fan of PEL.
1: No, I think it was, a his press person hooked us press up. Press person. With, okay. Yeah. I think it's one of those. They're a blessing and a curse. Makes it way
3: less exciting to me.
1: (laughs) Having those business people interested in us is a blessing and a curse. (laughs) Mm
4: -hmm. I put it all in the category of what makes for a good guest. So the problem of being a public philosopher, public intellectual, and bringing them on to talk about a book, I think Wes is right. It sort of sets them up for failure, even on the terms of our podcast, because just makes it hard to have a conversation that isn't really us asking them about things they thought about in their book and them responding and become a kind of Q&A. And that's a perfectly respectable format. It's just not the one that we like. We're looking to have a conversation. So those occasions, I think, Can be more successful if we end up talking about some third thing that maybe is resonant with whatever they're doing, but is the thing we're focused on in the conversation rather than them in their book. And uh, similarly with celebrity guests, the bottom line there is we're looking to have somebody engage with us and with some text and have a give and take interleaved conversation about it, and that means that they're a capable of having a conversation that involves you know give and take and listening and contributing their own part and having their role in it not dominating but also not disappearing, and also uh, needs them to be in a position where they have some interesting things to say about it. And I think you can have that with celebrity guests. you know I think it's totally possible. I just think the question is how how you find the ones that hit that sweet spot? That's the biggest problem.
2: Yeah. You know, it feels like also for all the year-end conversations that we've had, I don't know when we started doing them before we had nightcaps, we have the same conversation every year. How did the guests go? What makes a good guest? Should we have guests? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I imagine that things will be more or less the same as they always have been next year, unless somebody cares to assert their will, impose their will upon the group.
1: I'm feeling less, since I have these other outlets now within the podcast network, less likely to use this as a way to experiment and meet new people and get into area. You know, there's enough unquestionably legitimate philosophy to cover.
2: I don't know, man. I think we're pretty much done.
1: (laughs) I do. I mean, Wes, you mentioned the areas you're particularly attracted to and Dylan mentioned pragmatism in particular. I mean, it's surprising how little attention we've given to pragmatism over the years that we had a couple of initial episodes on it. We eventually did a little Rorty, but like for something that is such a major force, we've really given surprise, like there's been another William James one at least, plus that Dewey one I just mentioned on our radar for a while. For me, it kind of blends into the late 19th century or early 20th century. That might be the sweet spot for me. So, you know, I always liked phenomenology, but the more I learn about like Henri Bergson, and I just mentioned wanting to do more Husserl, but Merleau-Ponty, you know, doing more. So we're getting into the 30s and 40s with folks like that. But, you know, there's so much from that area, Whitehead, that I just want to make sure we periodically go back and check off another thing from that box i feel like we have checked off german idealism very thoroughly like i still am open to doing some more kant but what else even in that area Wes, did you mean literally that you want to do more german idealism or do holderlin or something or
3: well eventually we can do more hegel there's
1: sure hegel on politics hegel on yeah
3: there's more stuff to do and yeah and we could do some of those those other figures i think it would be fun to do especially the guys who are criticizing Kant right afterwards, the guys leading up to Fichte. Anyway, but...
1: Someone just mentioned on Twitter today, they were shocked that we'd never done any Novalis. And I was like, nobody's ever requested Novalis ever. But- <laughs> isn't, that,
4: isn't Novalis a drug?
1: <laughs> so I, I looked it over. I'm not even sure if that's the proper pronunciation, but he's a, a German 18th century poet, a philosopher of early German Romanticism. So this is, I guess, an area that's, at least adjacent to the mm-hmm. what you're talking about. But we've never actually done somebody who is officially a romantic. Like that's why I had us do Herder a few years ago as another aesthetics episode. But even Herder was not quite a romantic. Like at least there was not that ecstatic union with the, the thing that just Nietzsche hated, <laughs> you know, that all these guys were reacting to. Like I feel so maybe Novalis is the guy. I don't know.
3: We should do Goethe and Schlegel and who's that aesthetics? guy we always talk about Schiller. Schiller. Yeah. I think those would come before Navalos, right?
1: I don't know. I don't know enough about the, about the area, but we've also talked recently, you know, I think Erasmus is going to, we're going to hit very soon. That was just one in writing that book that along with this outline, they sent me, was like, here's a list of philosophers you should include, or we suggest you include. And Erasmus was on the list. I'm like, really? Erasmus is one of the foundational philosophers that everybody should have read? I don't know. Did you guys do him in uh, St. John's?
3: No, but he is a critical figure in the, I mean, my mom was into him, so I knew all about him, but he's a critical figure in the Northern Enlightenment, right?
1: I thought he was around the time of Machiavelli, kind of like the yeah. only thing I ever looked at him to consider is when we read Machiavelli, then Erasmus had written something maybe afterward considerably, but, you know, responding like, here's my version of how to be a good, you know, head of state. But it was just so bland and Christian compared to what we saw in Machiavelli that I was like, I
4: I don't need to. Yeah, not not enlightenment, (laughs) but
3: but Renaissance. Renaissance. Yeah, the Northern Renaissance. There's a university in I think it's Rotterdam, Erasmus University. Are you saying you already looked a bit at this and you found it boring? Or
4: oh no, well the one that we're in
1: praise of folly is what everybody says you should read, and that's the one that I think we should read. You know, it's like you know the fact that we got around to doing Pascal's wager. That was a great thing to have Mm -hmm. finally hit. It's not something that when I started doing philosophy, that was on my top 20 of things to read, but like he is in the canon somewhere. So why not?
3: I grew up hearing my mom mention Erasmus, talk about Erasmus, but yeah, that's the sum of my knowledge. (laughs) And she um, was
1: into all sorts of like sort of liberal theologians. Not that Erasmus counts as that, but like that is the intellectual climate she was into, right? Nope.
3: No, I mean, what do you mean? Who, who else?
1: Oh gosh, I I don't know. When we were doing our Gadamer and Ricoeur, there were other names of modern Ricoeur-like Christians that you were like, oh yeah, that guy and that guy, and it's all lost to me right
3: now. Um, I don't remember that, but my mom, she got a master's degree in Irish literature in Dublin, which is why she took us there. She took us to England when I was a kid, and then to Ireland, and she. So Samuel Beckett was the person she wrote her. Master's thesis on who's like I don't know how do you how do you classify him absurdist or anyway very avant-garde experimental playwright very hard to read and then she tried to get a Ph.D. in English while subjecting me and my little sister to terrible poverty doing that and then finally gave up so all of my interest came from her like I was surrounded by books Plato this Plato that. You know, to the point where we'd get in these massive, you know, when I was old enough to finally read Plato and like talk to her about it, we'd just get in these massive arguments. Like that's what, when I was a teenager, that's what I'd get in fights with my mom about, like yelling matches about Plato and (laughs) other stuff like that. So that's an example of, you know, she had her hobby horses, people she would mention all the time. And and Erasmus for some reason was one of them.
1: Seth, is there some area that really you find that where your heart lies that you would Love us to spend more time in or circle back to. I mean, I know you've expressed interest whenever we do like a specifically Jewish philosopher, which there have only been like a few of them, the Buber and stuff, and Spinoza and Maimonides. But I didn't know if that was like an area that you were, you know, you felt like we'd underserved.
2: So, yeah, I mean, Spinoza doesn't really count as Jewish as far as philosophy goes. Sure. It's not that there are Jewish philosophers that interest me so much as I'm interested in the Jewish way of thinking with respect to what is known as rabbinical or biblical interpretation and how that cashes out in terms of theology and philosophy versus the Western way, but I guess mainstream Western way. I probably would have said phenomenology a long time ago when we first started this podcast. I feel like I could probably never get tired of doing aesthetics, which is a complete reversal for me because it was never an area of interest to me before, but now I find it much more interesting. You know, I still am not 100% sure that we've given process philosophy a a fair shake, but that's not a, it's not like that's an area. That's just a dude, right?
1: Well, it's, I think, Bergson, who's actually fun to read. So going back to him for another swipe.
2: Unlike Whitehead. And Whitehead, who is not so fun (laughs) to read. Not fun to
3: read. (laughs) At
2: all. And Bergson was kind of a polymath too, right? I mean, Didn't he write pretty widely and do lots of different things?
1: I don't remember. I mean, my overall impression is that he was like William James, isn't that? Yeah, there's some super competence and smarts there, but also a breeziness about the style, about the whole presentation, a popularization, something, you know, they had groupies that makes it a little less fancy (laughs) than reading Whitehead.
3: We should do more existentialism as well. That's an interest you and I share, Mark. Right? It
1: is, but I feel like because we both share that, we did a lot of it pretty early, and so I don't like. What in particular are we missing?
3: I don't know. I I, I don't have anything on the top of my head, but there's a million things that we're missing. <laughs> sure, it's an endless number of books. That... Well, actually,
1: somebody just requested a you know. Actually, one of the guys I tutor said you should do some Miguel de Unamuno. So he's a Christian existentialist that we've never hit. <laughs> so. There are streams within that. There are distinct figures in that. that It's not just a matter of reading more Sartre.
4: Mm. What about doing another novel or two?
3: Yeah, we should.
4: Even an existential novel. Maybe we could hit two birds with one stone.
3: I'll tell you what. Why don't we do Ulysses?
1: (laughs) Didn't I just see something about... oh, Oh, somebody, they pitched us a new illustrated version of it. I think, like, do you guys want to cover the new... Illustrated version of Ulysses, and I think it was yeah like a, a really elaborate. And I think I asked you guys, we, do you want free copies of that? Like, so maybe we should.
3: I, how did I miss that?
1: <laughs> adding pictures to that book might make it better. <laughs> might make it more.
3: Have you accessible. tried to read it?
1: I did it as an audio book. I don't think I quite finished it. I got pretty far.
3: But you did write your own stream of consciousness novel, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I did that.
2: You should have some sympathy. I had read
1: for... Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. I think it
2: was had some influence on me. I'll read it if it's a graphic novel.
1: <laughs> well, and there was another thing we had. Uh, they even sent us. I have on my shelf Moby Dick. I don't know if it's Moby Dick and philosophy, but you know, I think one of our fans like wrote a whole book about. Moby Dick as philosophy. And so we talked for a while. That's another one. I tried to re- listen to that as an audiobook. I never actually finished it. It is so long, but I you know, I got at least halfway in.
3: I read that book actually. It's a short one, right?
1: That old Moby Dick. That's a, just a short
3: one? No, Moby, Dick is, Moby philosophy. Dick is philosophy. I think I talked to the author at some huh. point. I think the author had gotten in touch with me. It's short, it's good, it's interesting. You saying you didn't get through it?
1: No, it was the book Moby Dick. I have never, I've never gotten through it. Oh, oh! (laughs) Did you long since read that? I I think
3: that would definitely, that's like a perfect fit for us in a way. I'd do Moby Dick. Well, it's
1: not a perfect fit as far as reading something in two weeks. So that has been the thing with novels is that like with Dostoevsky, it was fine, but we had to pick it five months before we were actually going to do it. So if you guys like this idea, then we
2: have now picked it. I don't know, Seth, do you agree to reading Moby Dick or listening to the audiobook? Don't put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm open to the idea, but I'm not going to agree on this in this format. I got to right. take a look and see. It's not the type of fiction I'm really super excited about reading right now, but it's like we might as well. Hey, Heart of Darkness, Moby Dick. What's the other one? We, we don't have to do Heart of Darkness. Wes did that on subtext already. Mm. We're, we're off the hook.
3: <laughs> Two for Heart of Darkness, against... then Apocalypse, now. Yeah. How about... Demons Dostoevsky, I think.
2: So there's something more Russians. Or? I, I don't want to sign up to read like an entire novel by Dostoevsky or or Tolstoy, but it kind of feels like that's something like we that really should be done. Like almost and much more so, the audiobook of that is only 93 hours long, something like that. Moby Dick is an explicitly philosophical
3: novel. What you're saying? Are you talking about philosophical content wise? Or yeah. It's also beautifully written. He vexes me. He's a better writer, writer, like as a literary artist, he's frankly better than Tolstoy (laughs) and Dostoevsky, but
2: in translation, you know, he's not as fun, you know, right? Well, I don't know.
1: All right. I don't want to get hung up on in the party here since we're wrapping up on specifics, but just that's as usual, sort of reach out to the listenership. That's what we're open to. I guess another thing is I sort of let the thing about plays those audio plays were very fun, and now we even know more people that we could do them with. I wasn't sure what the next philosophical play to do. I don't want to do freaking Shakespeare. We have now, you know, reading all of King Lear as an out loud, too much to, to face up to the pressure of people actually performing that well, and how many versions of that are available. But I don't know. I feel like we did enough ancient.
3: What about like Iceman Cometh or something like that, or Death of a Salesman or any of any of those type of things? I
1: do not know. We'll keep it open and we want to, yeah. So I I guess I want to leave you guys with the challenge to add both of Peter Adamson's feeds to your podcast app and browse around. They're very short. You can listen to them at double speed probably and get everything that you need because he talks really slowly and uh, just use that as a very low cost way to check out, do I want to hear what? these medieval or pre-socratic or ancient indian thinkers think on this thing like if i'm not the only one coming in with some of these interests that would help
3: (laughs) the problem is he like reads into the he reads his a script into the microphone right
1: yeah that's why you got to just crank it up to double
3: speed (laughs) has he gotten (laughs) above like 1000 bc yet or or where is he
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I listened to probably the first 50 episodes of that podcast. I don't remember. And it's just the pace of progress. I love the idea, but the pace of progress. I like. I couldn't take the journey with him. Like maybe now that he's got a few more years in the bag and there's like, you could pick and choose, but I just, I couldn't take the journey with him. I, particularly when he got into the medieval Islamic stuff and I was just like, my eyes were glazing over it. I can't, I mean, I can't take that stuff.
3: For me, that's just like the Bermuda Triangle of philosophy. That's where my interest just goes to, to, to <laughs> die and disappear <laughs> without a trace.
1: All right. Well, I don't feel bad about this because I've praised Peter. We've had him on the show and he won't listen to our show either. So if you guys won't listen I, to his show, that's fine.
2: This is not a criticism. <laughs> it's a preference, not a criticism. I, a I think preference. this project's great. I don't want to be on the journey with him. I love the fact that he's creating a resource that I can use, but I don't want to take the journey with him.
1: One distinction that listening to that has made clear to me is the distinction between actual philosophical traditions, you know, written philosophy, like in India and China, versus ethno-philosophy, which is like what we did for our Native American philosophy episode that some people didn't like that we did that because it was like, okay, this is largely an oral culture. What were the sort of folk beliefs? And can we get a philosophy out of that? In some ways, that's what you have to do if you want to like read about non-Egyptian, ancient African philosophy or something like that. But it also, there are scholarly debates over whether we should be doing that, whether that actually makes that area sort of, if you're looking for more representation from the area or whatever, then you should actually look at what people who have all the information, in other words, people now who are plugged in in that area are doing rather than we don't necessarily, we're not going to do one on ancient Celtic mythology. So why would we do ancient African or a Native American tribe, their mythology?
3: It's yeah, not, this is my objection. I'd like, yeah, I don't want to do, you know, mysticism and religion. I don't want to get heavily into that in this podcast. Like that's just not what I'm interested in. So it's not about it being Eastern or this or that. It's just that would never was my interest. And those those to me are two entirely different interests.
1: That's what I want to open your mind up though, about Indian philosophy in particular, is that they were doing something that is as rich as what was going on in ancient Greece after the Vedas, after the Bhagavad Gita that we covered, that we at least touched on in this one episode, and that it sort of opened up a new world. Anyway, yeah, we would love to hear what you folks think about this, and we will get you a real episode, a normal episode, on the Mala branch, coming up very soon. Thanks, everybody, for being with us for the last year. Happy New Year, everybody.
3: Happy New Year. Happy New Year.
2: Good night. Good night.
3: Good night.